Well, we, you can turn over in your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We've been in our study of 1 Corinthians now for uh, 20 lessons, and we find ourselves in chapter 3, and we're making headway, but we can't hurry these things, as you know, or maybe you don't know, but I know. <laughs> we can't hurry these things because uh, we have to take time with the Word of God, and it's good because each week you can ponder it and ponder what was taught the week before. So I want to read our, our verses for us, the first nine verses, basically out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and then we'll continue our study from last week, understanding spiritual uh, maturity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. As I said, we're in this kind of mini-series here on understanding spiritual maturity. And last week, we asked the question, do you ever wonder why it's difficult to live the Christian life? Why is it so difficult? you think that it would be easy. God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's given us the mind of Christ. He's given us his word. He's given us the church. Why do we struggle so much as Christians with living a faithful Christian life? life. And we talked about two reasons, and this is kind of all review, the world and the flesh. Those are basically the two reasons. The first one, the world is something that's outside of us. It's external. The second one, the flesh, is something who we are. It's, it's part of us. And these are both instruments used by our enemy, Satan, to really tempt believers, but also to keep believers from living lives of faithfulness and victory in Christ. And I think that if we were to show hands, how many of you struggle with living a faithful Christian, victorious Christian life, most of our hands would go up. Just because it's a daily battle, it's who we are. It's the world in which we live. And so we talked about last week a little bit about being, as a believer, we go against the grain. We go against the teachings of worldliness. We go against the philosophies and the wisdom that he talks about in chapter 2 of this age as believers. And so you're trying to breathe maybe from a, a, a different atmosphere even as a believer. Uh, and you're finding yourself like a, 
spiritual salmon trying to swim against the flow. Well, secondly, not only are we going against the grain of the world, we're going against the internal fleshly desires of our humanness. I mean, it'd be nice when we got saved if all of a sudden we had our glorified bodies. Wouldn't that be wondrous? I mean, it just, you know, it'd be even better if we, he just took us to be with him. As soon as you committed your life to Christ, boom, you're out of here. I think that would be a little motivating factor for a lot of people. Or maybe not. It depends where your heart is. But really, it doesn't work that way. So before we're a Christian, we're listening to our flesh every day. That's all we know. But then when God transforms our heart, when God calls us to be, be Christians, when God calls us to place our trust in Christ in Christ and his sacrifice in that alone, what happens is all of a sudden we're pulled in two different directions, not just one. See, before we were a Christian, we're just doing what's natural. That's why sometimes as we encounter unbelievers, we, we have to be careful with holding expectations in their lives against them as unbelievers that we would for Christians because they're only doing what comes natural. Now, that doesn't negate the fact that we speak out against error. We speak out about untruthfulness. We speak out about heretical teaching. We don't just give them a pass because they're unbelievers. That wouldn't be what we are called to do. As a matter of fact, you look at the life of Jesus. He did not do that. He didn't give people a pass because they weren't believers. As a matter of fact, he was full bore uh, kind of going against them in every way, the religious leaders of his day. I mean, just think of some of the things, some of the conversations Jesus had with the religious leaders of his day. These were religious leaders, by the way, people that really were to be respected by the worldly society. They looked at the religious leaders and all their garb, and they said, wow, this is, this is a spiritual man. And most non-believers would at least respect a Pharisee or a Sadducee. But when Jesus ever had an encounter with them, what did he do? He, he full-on confronted them to the point where, I mean, he even, he, this is hard to believe, but he even called them names. Brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. Those are not lighthearted things to say to someone who is of a religious bent And he did it with all sincerity. He did it with all purity. He wasn't mocking them. He was saying what was true. And so the problem here with the Corinthian church, unfortunately, was they faced this. They faced the outside world because that's where they were saved out of, mostly made up of a a pagan uh, clientele, their church was. It was saved out of paganism. But then they also had that internal thing going on of the flesh. And that created problems for them as well. And they couldn't avoid either the world or the flesh because what happened in that church was people brought into the church of Christ what they were taught in the world. That's what happened. And so they had all these philosophies. In chapter 2, he talks about this, the wisdom of the Spirit, the wisdom of this age. And what it started to do is started to cloud people's vision. It started to create some issues within the Corinthian church. And Paul had to address it. They were succumbing to the world, even though they were believers. He he doubles down on this over and over again. Even in our first verse there, he says, but I, Paul, brothers. 
He's not calling them a bunch of pagans anymore. Why? Because they aren't. They have placed their faith in Christ. Christ obviously has transformed them. He's counting them as part of the body of Christ. The problem was they weren't living like it. They were succumbing to the flesh. They were succumbing to the the world. And as a result, all kinds of sin began to, to surface in this church. I mean, sins that we would never think would be found in a church were found right here in the church of Corinth. As a matter of fact, that's all he does the rest of the book. I mean, you know, that's just what he does. He addresses from basically chapter 1 all the way through, beginning here in chapter 3, really, all the way through to chapter 16, various sins that they were involved with. He didn't give them a pass. He just didn't say, well, that's kind of an embarrassing thing to talk about. I'm not going to go there. He didn't do that. Why? Because he had to be faithful to what God's calling was upon his life. And so all these sins came into the church because they had an inability to deal with the world and the flesh, even as a believer. And you know what? If we were to be honest, sometimes we would have to say the same thing is true in our lives, that sometimes we have difficulty dealing with the world and dealing with the flesh. So he begins to address one of the sins that was creating problems in the church of Corinth, and that was the sin of division. The sin of division. Now, as I said last week, no sin is isolated. There's always one sin leads to another, and a lot of sins mostly are a combination of things. And division is not an isolated sin that just creates and eva- happens in a vacuum. It's the product of other sins. And he begins to mention some. He mentions some here in our text. He says down in verse 3, he talks about jealousy and strife. But if you think of other sins, I mean, there's lots of sins. Jealousy, strife, pride. I mean, you can go on and on and on. All those things will seek to divide the body of Christ. And that in and of itself is not honoring to the Lord whenever you have a body that is divided. And so Paul knew that division was a very serious thing, but to, in order to attack that sin of division, he had to attack a bunch of other stuff. And that's basically what he does in the remainder of the book. He spends a lot of time on division. Over and over and over he brings it up. But here he says specifically division is, is caused by a couple things. And we just mentioned those, worldliness and the flesh. That's where division comes from, worldliness and the flesh. Because when a person becomes a Christian, what happens? They become a new creature in Christ. Isn't that what the Bible says? They have a new inner being. They have a favorable uh, disposition toward God, you might say. If you're outside of Christ, there's no way you could ever have a, a favorable relationship with God. It's impossible outside of Christ. And so in 2 Peter, we looked at chapter 1, verse 4 specifically. He says that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. We're actually partakers of a divine nature as Christians, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, 
the new has come. Now, there's a lie floating around the church today that says, well, you know, you can be, you can be a, a Christian and still have the old nature. And when we went through the book of Romans, we went into that in depth, and I'd steer you to those studies because we just don't have the time nor the wherewithal to go through all that this morning. But the Bible says when you become a believer in Christ, old things are passed away. The old nature is no longer active. It's dead, he says in Romans. So how can something dead influence you? So where does the influence come from? It doesn't come from your old nature. It comes from your flesh, which is different. If, Like I said, if God saved us and gave us a glorified body, do you understand we'd never have to deal with sin again? ever, because we'd be in a glorified state. But he doesn't do that. Now, you can conjecture why. I mean, if I was God, I would probably, the, the, the rational reason why he leaves us in this fleshly body and in this fleshly world while we're saved is, first of all, the lost still need to be reached, and that's part of our, our ministry, reaching out to those who have yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ, who have yet to be transformed by God's grace. We are the conduit to where the gospel goes to them through. Through our lives, through our lips. That's one reason. But I think also another reason is he just wants us to be dependent upon him. I mean, if I was in my glorified body, I wouldn't need to really depend on God at that point. Okay? I mean, mean, yeah, he would still be God. I wouldn't be God. It's not you're equating the two. But you're not going to have to deal with a lot of things in your glorified body. And see, he said, no, I'm I'm going to leave you in your sinful bodies, even though I'm going to transform you and I'm going to make you a brand new person. And I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to live within you, as a matter of fact. And if you do things right, you can have a very blessed life. But if you do things wrong, if you don't listen to that spirit, if you don't live by my word... If your trust isn't continually in Christ and Christ alone, as a Christian, you're going to be one miserable individual. Because you're not only trying to deal with the flesh and the world, now you're dealing with the spirit that's inside of you. Constantly. What is it doing? Convicting you when you walk away from truth. And so you're pulled not just in two directions, but really three, if you think about it. And so as believers in Christ, we're sw- swimming upstream. And picture the world as a giant magnet, and it never turns off. And its pull is always upon us. And it's constantly trying to suck us in. We can become so easily distracted from things in the world. Think of the things we're distracted from every day, or we're that prove a distraction to us every day in this world. We have our jobs. We have our families. Yeah, you know what? Your family can be a distraction. (laughs) Um, You have your finances. You have your home. You have your car. You have so many things. Then you have the idea of, well, you know, we're called to reach these people, so how do we do that? And, you know, does that mean we just sacrifice everything and cozy up to them and try to love them into the kingdom? Well, that's not going to work out. That's not what Jesus said to do. He said, repent, believe the gospel. That's what needs to happen. You know, 
there was an illustration of a man who bought a, a dog. It was a hunting dog, and he was all excited. He lived in the, out in the hills, and he thought, man, he was eager to see how this dog paid a lot of money for it, how it would perform. And so he had a kind of a, 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 a bear on his great land that he owned, and he figured, you know what, I've got to figure out where this bear is because it could be dangerous. It could, you know, it's gotten into some of the things. And so he took his dog, and he went out to track the bear thought, well, this is going to be easy. This dog will pick right up on the scent. Well, no sooner had the dog got into the woods, it picked up the trail. And he's thinking, well, this is going to be easy peasy. And the dog's going down. The th- all of a sudden, the dog stops. Began to sniff around the ground. And all of a sudden, he heads in the opposite direction. It's like, well, wait a minute. What's going on? <laughs> and the, the dog goes down the path in the opposite direction for you know, a quarter mile or so. All of a sudden, the dog stops. Heads off to the left. The man's following it, thinking, wow, this bear is pretty mobile here. You know, and he's following this expensive tracking dog. Well, a few moments later, the dog halted again. And by this time, headed off in the opposite direction. And the man at this time is kind of confounded, thinking, what in the world is happening? Well, what he figured out was, yeah, the dog was tracking the bear at first. Then it came across the scent of a deer. So it started tracking the deer. Then it started tracking a little rabbit <laughs> that it started to smell. And in the end, basically, you know where this dog ended up? The dog ended up triumphantly barking down the hole of this little field mouse. What was the dog's problem? Distraction. It was distracted by all the scents located in that forest. You know, sometimes we can be distracted by the world, even as Christians. I'm reminded of, you know, some of you love the, the hymn, Come Thou Fount. We know that, that hymn well. Come Thou Fount of every blessing, tune my heart. To sing thy grace, streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mount, I'm fixed upon it, mount of thy redeeming love. And in the last stanza, the author of the words of that, Robert Robinson, wrote this. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Well, who was Robert Robinson? Robert Robinson was an individual when he was just a, a young boy. His dad died. In 18th century England, um, there was very little way of social welfare, things like that. And he had to go to work at a very young age. And without a father to guide him and steady him, he fell in with some bad companions. And one day, the story says, his gang of rowdies harassed a, a drunken gypsy. And pouring liquor down her throat, they demanded that she tell their fortunes for free. And pointing her finger at Robert, she told him 
he would live to see his children and his grandchildren. And he thought, wow, if that's the case, I better change the way that I'm living. I can't keep living the way I am. And so he decided to go hear the Methodist preacher of his day, George Whitfield. And he had a desire to go, but he wanted to kind of, he was kind of embarrassed to tell the rest of the gang. So he suggested they all go and they mock this preacher of God's word. They thought they could go and heckle this man. And Whitfield preached on the text in Matthew 3, 7, O generation of vipers, who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And when Robert left that service, he felt dread in his soul. He had a deep sense of conviction over the sin in his life for the past three years. And finally, at the age of 20, Robert made peace with God and immediately set out to become a Methodist preacher himself. Two years later, in 1757, that's when he wrote this hymn. Some refer to him as the divine drifter because prone to, to wander, definitely Robert was. He left the Methodist and he became a Baptist. Now, some of us would say, well, that's probably in a good direction to wander, but... Later on, having become a close friend of Joseph Priestley, he was accused of becoming a Unitarian. And some said that he even denied the full deity of Christ at one point. However, there is evidence that in a sermon he preached after he supposedly became a Unitarian, he clearly declared that Jesus was God. But Robert Robinson died on June 9th, 1790. And that question is, had he left the God he loved? I mean, who knows? But don't think it can't happen to any one of us. We can stray from the things of God and be caught up by the things of the world. You know, we described worldliness last week. Basically, worldliness is this, buying into the world's philosophies, buying into human wisdom. It's, it's really looking to the world, to the, to the human secular leaders of the world, to the influential popular people of the world, maybe even neighbors, associates, fellow students, for our own standards as believers, our own attitudes as believers, our own meaning Worldliness is accepting the world's definitions, the world's measuring sticks, the world's goals. And see, this was the cause of their division, worldliness. They were still hanging on to these old worldly philosophies that had been taught years before, before they were even saved. Well, the second thing he pointed out was the great obstacle to Christians face is the flesh. And we're going to spend a little more time here this week. Because when we are given Christ's divine nature, our flesh is not removed. We still have it. That won't occur, the removal of our flesh, until we receive our glorified bodies, as Romans 8 tells us. So until then, our flesh continually resists 
It opposes the new things that God is trying to push into our lives. Even Paul, the Apostle Paul, struggled in his faith. He wrote in Romans chapter 7, For that which I am doing I do not understand. I am not practicing what I like to do. But I am doing the very thing I hate. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil I do not wish. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind. See, when we're born physically, we inherit from Adam the flesh. And along with that, all the propensity to sin. And when we're born spiritually, God gives us a new spirit, a new heart. God broke the back of sin. He crippled its ability. He paid its penalty. But the tendency towards evil is still there in our hearts. If you were to describe sinfulness in one word, it'd be the word selfish. That's really what sin is. And so here, today, I want to look at the spirituality of man. I want us to understand a little bit more about what it means to be a spiritual being or a natural being. Um, The internal fleshly desires that the Corinthians were faced with what happened was these desires and these, these, these fleshly wisdom and philosophies that they were encountering, that they had encountered in the world and they brought into the church, they began to uh, overrule the statements of the Word of God and the revelation of God. Now, that, that is pretty devastating when that begins to happen. When the Word of God says one thing, and your belief system says another, we have a problem. We have a very serious problem. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a very serious problem. And so you see here, the enemies of the Lord's work, the world and the flesh, both collectively and corporately, and even individually, were coming against these believers in Corinth. And they, they come against us each and every day. And so he attacks this division from, first of all, there, back in even chapter 2, he begins to describe there's, there's two kinds of individuals in the world today. And there's only two. We want to talk about this. First one is the spiritual man. The spiritual man. Uh, spiritual comes from the, the Greek word. It basically uh, has the idea of, of spiritual realm in general. But here it's used in their relationship, speaks to their relationship to God. You know, everyone has some form of a relationship to God. Even if you're not a believer, you have a relationship to God. You may not admit it, but he's your creator, is he not? Therefore, you have a, a relationship with him. Now, it's not a relationship that will save. That's what Romans 1 talks about. But at the same time, there is a relationship there. And so first of all, I want us to look at the, uh, the, the spiritual man, the spiritual person. And I think you can put that slide up there. Um, 
there's a organization, Campus Crusade for Christ, they put out a little pamphlet several, well, many years ago called How to Live the Spirit-Filled Life. And they use these diagrams to explain not two, but three kinds of people. We believe the Bible teaches there's only two kinds of individuals. The first one is the spiritual person. The person who is indwelt, they're filled with the spirit of God himself, and this process makes Jesus Christ very real to them. He's their savior, you might say. It's someone who is a Christian. It's not someone who's saying there's a better Christian and then uh, you know, there's a Christian down here and a Christian up here. It's not used in that sense here, in Corinthians especially. What he's saying is that, you know what, Jesus is in your life, he's on the throne, you're yielding to Christ, and you see his influence, his direction in your life every day. 1 Corinthians 2.15, he who is spiritual praises all things, we have the mind of Christ. That is the first kind of person. They're saved, they possess the Holy Spirit. Positionally, they're always spiritual, always. Positionally. What do I mean by that? I mean that when you are saved, what does God do? God takes the righteousness of Christ and he imputes it onto your unrighteous life. Even though you're not righteous, he declares you righteous. Right? Amen. You're right. Amen. There should be several amens because we would never be righteous if God did not declare us righteous and give us the righteousness of Christ. How do I know that to be true? Because the Bible says there's no good thing that dwells within us. Not just even a little bit. And so we have no righteousness that is pleasing to God. Now, some of us may have a righteousness that's pleasing to the world. You may be able to impress your neighbor with your own brand of righteousness, but you're never going to impress God. As a matter of fact, God says, you know what? Your, your good deeds, your righteous acts are like filthy rags when it comes to me. They don't mean anything to him. He throws them aside like you would throw out a, 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 a menstrual rag. That's really what the intent of that, that verse is. It's not something you would keep around. And so the spiritual person, one who puts their faith and trust in Christ, is given the righteousness of Christ. Well, how can God do that? Because Christ died on the cross. Well, why did he have to do that? So that he could bear our unrighteousness, so that he could take upon himself all of our sin and pay the penalty of it. Do you know that even if you went to the cross and crucified yourself, you wouldn't be saved? Why? Because you're a sinful being. Sin can't die for sin. You have to have righteousness die for sin. You have to have he who is without spot or blemish die for our sin. That's why Christ is called the spotless lamb of God. He lived 30-some years here on earth. And by the way, the reason he had to live here on earth, the reason why he had to come down from heaven, he couldn't just snap his fingers in heaven, he had to come down to heaven and live a physical life. When he was here on earth, he was 100% God, 100% human, man, yet without sin, the Bible says. 
The reason he had to have the incarnation is because, and I said this before, the last time I checked, God cannot die. He can't die, or he wouldn't be God. So what did Jesus have to do to die? He had to take on a human body. With all of the natural things that come along with a human body. Jesus sweat. I'm sure on certain days he didn't smell very nice walking long hours in the dust and everything. Probably when he got to his thing, you know, they had to they had their feet washed. They had to clean up. Just because he was Jesus, it's not like he walked around with a halo and just floated around here on earth. He was hungry. He had emotions. He wept. He was even tempted as we are yet without sin. So the Bible makes it very clear that when Christ died on the cross, he died, yes, as a human being. He didn't die as God. God can't die, but he died as a human being. And when he did that, God was able to take all of the sin of all those people who would ever put their faith and trust in Christ, and he put it upon his own son. That's why it's not so much the passion of the Christ. We see the passion of the Christ, the movie. What does it focus on? It focuses on the physical suffering of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that that was, we should belittle that. I, I, you know, there's, there's a lot of men that were crucified in the, in the time of Christ. He wasn't the only one. There was a lot of men who went through the same physical pain that Jesus did. His physical pain did not save us. It was the spiritual implications of what happened on that cross. The fact that as he hung there, The Father imputed to him, gave to him all of our sin. And as a result, was able to give to us all of his righteousness. And when Jesus died, God treated him as if he had committed every sin of every believer who would ever commit any sin, even though he had never committed one. (laughs) He was perfect in every way. He transferred, he imputed to Christ our sinfulness. And then he paid the price of our sin. That's what makes it possible for us to come to Christ. That's what makes it possible for us to have a relationship with God. Because we have no righteousness of our own. So you see there in that picture, the the little cross is on the throne. And the individual is down at the foot of the cross. And all those little circles arranged in a very orderly fashion would depict a spiritual person, someone who is living in a, in a way that's yielding to the lordship of Christ. They're un, under the influence of the Holy Spirit. This describes every Christian positionally, positionally, not necessarily practically. Why? Because there are days, you know, I, I I mean, sometimes I, I used to relate it to young people this way. You know, picture yourself driving down the freeway, and you have a guy in the back seat, and the guy taps you on the shoulder and says, I want to drive. Let me drive. So he climbs into the front seat, and he takes the wheel, and you get in the back seat. Now, if you're anything like me, that's not going to last very long. Just kind of a control freak. I don't like people driving me, you know, anywhere, ever, very much. Um, for me to take an Uber, that's a real step of faith, let me tell you. Okay, um, so he, he, picture this. Here you are, a believer. The Holy Spirit's in the car. 
You come to Christ, the Holy Spirit's driving the car down the freeway. That's a good position to be in. You're, you're filled, you're controlled by the Spirit. You're, you're, you're allowing him to lead and guide in your life. But usually, sooner or later, what do we tend to do? We tend to tap the Holy Spirit on the shoulder. Say, hey, you know what? Uh, Backseat, pal. I want to drive this car. I, I, you're not really taking me where I want to go. I want to go this direction, so let me do it. What are we doing when we're doing that? We're sinning. We're sinning. We're not yielding to the Spirit's influence in our life. We're not walking in accord with what God desires us to do. We're not living by his truth. Now, that doesn't make you unspiritual in the biblical sense. It just makes you disobedient. It makes you really sinful. You're living sinfully when that happens because you're no longer under the Spirit's influence. Your, 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 your flesh is kind of rising up and you're taking a hold of the wheel of your life and you're driving where you want to go. And what does the Spirit do? The Spirit convicts us. And pretty soon we end up on a curb or into a tree or something. We realize, well, this was stupid. Why did I do this? Lord, forgive me. Right? Confess your sin. Come back to say what, what sin is to God. Hey, I blew it. This is wrong. You need to be driving this car. You need to be in charge here. I yield back to you. That's the... The, the spiritual person is someone who is yielding back to Christ. You're walking in a spiritual way. It doesn't mean that you're not spiritual when you sin. It just means you're being disobedient. As a believer, you know, we, in these illustrations, you'll see um, well, let me go to the second one, and, and then I'll, I'll hit the third one. But the second one is the natural person. So you have a spiritual man who is a Christian. Let's just take it at face value. Whenever Paul's talking about spiritual people, he's talking about Christians. He's not talking about different levels of Christianity. He's talking about Christians. Well, the second person is the natural person or the natural man, someone who's outside of Christ, someone who hasn't received the gospel. They haven't received Christ. They haven't been transformed by the new life of Christ yet. So you look at that picture, you see who's on the throne. S for self. And they're directing all the decisions, all the actions, representing all the dots. You see they're kind of chaotically strewn through this individual's life because God's not in control of this individual. They're in control. As a matter of fact, God's outside of their life. Often, people like this, it says, are resulting in frustration. Jesus is outside the life. A lot of times, I would say this, that people in this state, when Christ is not in their life, a lot of people, they're just good to go. I've never run into a non-Christian and started to share the gospel with them where well, I can't say I've never run into it, but usually it's not the case that they're, they're saying, yeah, I am so miserable. Please give me the words of life so that I could be saved from my, my miserable experience here. No, most people that I share Christ with are like, why would I want to do that, man? I mean, I got a job that pays me six figures. I got four cars in my garage. I got to own a house up in Emerald Hills, several million dollars. I got kids going to the best colleges. 
Why do I need your God? Tell me again. See, I mean, they're satisfied in their sin. They, they've turned their back on God. They've turned their back on the creator. And they're, they're completely satisfied with where they're at. Now, God, when he calls, places the call, the, the salvation call upon their life, he begins to show them that all these things that they've collected and all these things of the world that they have are really not meeting the match. They're, they're not satisfying. And some of the wealthiest people in the world, you can read it for yourself, are the most miserable people in the world. And some of them have actually come to Christ. And they realize that, you know what? They were climbing the ladder. They were when they found it was leaning against the wrong wall in the end. It's just not worth it. So the natural person is a person who has yet to come to Christ. They're on the throne of their life. And, and Corinthians chapter 2 talks about this. It says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Just doesn't do it. It can't. For they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are what? Spiritually appraised. That's why when you heard the gospel the first time, it probably made no sense to you. Wait, you went, when he, Jesus did what? Okay, what's the catch? Do I have to give some money to your church, or what do I have to do here? No, it's, it's a free gift. Yeah, okay, right. I mean, you probably couldn't even, you know, fathom the idea of the gospel before you were a Christian. But when God turned the switch in your life and you actually came to Christ, when he saved you, he transformed you, he gave you a new mind, he gave you the spirit within you, and then you began to read the gospel on the pages of scriptures and like, wow, why didn't I believe this before? I remember being saved at the age of 19 out of the Catholic church. And I remember the bitterness in my heart toward the Catholic church because I thought, you know what, what if I would have died when I was 17? And I didn't hear the truth from you guys. Very bitter. One point after I became a Christian, I actually be, I thought about becoming a priest. I thought I'm going to go become a priest. Then I'm going to let everybody know what the true gospel is. Finally, a pastor said, "Well, that's kind of a ministry starting on deceitfulness. You might want to start that way. You might want to rethink this. Why don't you just go to school and learn something?" So that's what I ended up doing. But see, the natural man cannot accept the things of the spirit. Why? Because they're, they're spiritually discerned. They need the Holy Spirit. That's why, you know, you can read the Bible as a Christian and you can glean things from it. But when you share it with your neighbor, you're all happy. Oh, did you see this? And they're not a Christian. They're going, yeah, okay, whatever. <laughs> How are the warriors doing? I mean, they're just not interested. That's normal. Now, the problem with, with this little booklet that I told you about how to live a spirit-filled life is not the, the spiritual person or the natural person, but it's this third category that they came up with. And the third category is, is simply this, the carnal person or the carnal Christian. Now, I have to be careful here because Paul uses the word carnal. It simply means fleshly. It means people of the flesh. Sarkonos, it literally fleshly ones. So I, I'm going to describe what they believe the carnal Christian to be, and then we're going to hopefully look at what Paul says it really is. So wrongly, unfortunately, Campus Crusade in this little booklet says, well, you have the spiritual person, you have the natural person, and then you have this carnal Christian, they'll call it, car carnal person. And the carnal man is a, 
uh, saved person, you can see the cross is inside the influence of their life. But look at who's on the throne of their life, themselves. And so all the little dots are chaotically strewn throughout the life because this is a person who is really kind of messed up. And they, they teach this not just practically, but they teach it positionally. They teach that somehow, as a believer, we can take Jesus off the throne. So he's no longer Lord of your life. I don't see that taught anywhere in Scripture at all. And what it also does is it adds kind of a, a level of spirituality. It says that you can come to Christ and profess Jesus as your Savior. And you know what? If you don't want to leave all the worldly stuff behind, if you want to kind of continue in some of that stuff for a while, it's okay. You'll just be like this picture. You'll be on the throne of your life, not Christ. You'll still be saved. But everything's going to be chaotic because the Spirit will be constantly convicting you. Well, theologically, I'll just say this very plainly. Understand, Jesus is Lord. Jesus will always be Lord. We don't make him Lord when we come to him for salvation. But we hear that said all the time, do we not? People will give the gospel and say, well, you know, you just, you just need to make Jesus Lord. Well, I thought he was Lord. Who am I to make Jesus anything? As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he made us. <laughs> so we got everything discombobulated here, and it's really a misunderstanding of what Paul is saying in this passage that leads them down this path. They would say that this person tries to live the Christian life in the energy of the flesh. Now, that's true. There's some people that do that. Um, The carnal man is thoroughly wretched. The Holy Spirit is indwelling him, and so he won't allow him to enjoy the worldliness and the sensuality. Well, that's true of any Christian. The Holy Spirit is not going to allow us to enjoy the worldliness or the sensuality of the world or fleshliness. But then they say this, the old nature within him will not let him enjoy his new life. See, this is where they kind of go off the tracks. Because as I just said before, the old nature is what? The old nature is dead. All things have become new in Christ. And so if the old nature is dead, it's not going to have any influence on your new life in Christ. What will have the influence? The world and the flesh. So the carnal Christian, they say, is one who has received Christ but lives in defeat because he's trying to live the Christian life in his own strength. Jesus is not is in his life but not on the throne. Self is on the throne directing decisions and actions often resulting in frustration. So we come back to our text. 1 Corinthians 3, he says, brothers, he calls them Christians, I cannot speak to you. Now look at what he says. This is very important in the text. What does it say? It says, I could not address you as, as spiritual people. Do you see that as there? That's so important to understand. What's he saying? He goes, I can't even address you really as Christians, even though I just called you brothers. Because practically, your life is so messed up. You've brought in so much stuff from the world, all these philosophies. You're so mixed up in your spirituality. I can't even call you spiritual. But 
I'll refer to you as carnal. He's not making a separate designation. You know, you don't have some Christians who are spiritual and some Christians who are not. That's an impossibility. Because if you are a believer in Christ, guess what? You are given the Holy Spirit. So you are spiritual. But you have to think of it this way, positionally and practically. Unbelievers are totally unspiritual in both senses. Positionally, they don't have any relationship with God. God is outside of their lives. They don't have the Holy Spirit. There's no divine assistance for them whatsoever. And practically, they're just given into the world every day. They're drinking the Kool-Aid just constantly. And they don't even think it's wrong. They possess neither a new spirit nor the Holy Spirit. Their possession is natural. Their position is natural, excuse me, and their practice is natural. They just do what comes normally. Read Romans 1 once again. That's what happens. Believers, on the other hand, are totally spiritual 100% in a positional sense. We are before God positionally spiritual beings. We are placed into the body of Christ. We've been given a new inner being. We've been given a new birth that loves God, that's indwelt by his Holy Spirit. But let me say this. But practically, even a positionally spiritual believer can act in an unspiritual way, can act in a fleshly way. Every time we sin, we're acting in a fleshly way. The word flesh or carnal means men of the flesh. It speaks of sensuality under the control of the world, not under the control of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is holding them in account here, these Corinthian believers, for their, their fleshliness. He's saying, you know what? You're Christians, but I can't even call you Christians because you're not acting like Christians. You're acting like people of the world. You're acting like fleshly individuals, people of the flesh. And then he gives the evidence. He says there's jealousy, there's strife among you. You're acting in a fleshly way. That's what he says. You're, you're behaving only in a human way. And that can happen even to believers. So it's important that we make that distinguishment, that we understand that, you know what, a spiritual man is someone who is a Christian. A natural man is someone who is not a Christian, someone who is outside of the faith. And then he says in verse 1 as well, um, I have to address you as infants or babes. I mean, we all think babies are cute, right? We think babies are attractive. You go over in the nursery and you go, oh, look at the little baby, <laughs> drooling all over themselves. Yeah, that's great, you know, they're cute, you know. He's not being cute here. This is not Paul's intention. He's not saying, oh, you're just like a cute little baby. 
He's saying, I can only talk to you as babies. See, a baby's cute, but if you have a 25-year-old that's wearing diapers and sucking on a binky with no shirt on, we're not going to think that's very cute. <laughs> we're going to say, that's odd. What, what is wrong with this? And when they talk, they just go, goo, goo, ga, 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 ga. They don't say anything. Okay, there's a deficiency here. What happened to this individual? What's, what's, what's wrong with the growth process? That's not normal. This is what Paul is trying to communicate to them. He's holding them account- accountable for their carnality, but he's saying, you know what, I can't even speak to you on a spiritual level. I can only talk to you as a baby. You think about babies, they're self-centered. They're dependent on others for all their needs. They have short attention spans, unless they're staring at the blinds or the ceiling fan. They go for things that glitter. They have no sense of values whatsoever. They're illiterate. They're ignorant of a lot of what they need to know. Their own wants are number one. They're ruled by their appetites. They usually move from one thing to another. They're unable to feed themselves. They're unable to protect themselves. They're even unable to defend themselves. They cannot see beyond their little world of baby land. They enjoy being the center of attention. And they learn how to get their share of it. (laughs) They have no thought for the needs of others. They have no thought for the concern of others. They're demanding. They get themselves in the most frightful messes, but they're kind of almost blissfully unaware of it. I remember when our grandson was uh, maybe a year old, two years old. They lived up in Washington at the time, and they had a birthday party for him. And his dad made him this big chocolate cake, had Thomas the Train stuff on it or something. And I don't know who came up with the idea, but they said, let's just put it in front of him and see what he does on his high chair. Let's just set it there and see what he does. So we set it there, and he looked at it, and he's, you know, he couldn't even talk, hardly. And all of a sudden, he's just, Kah. and we just let it go. We thought, this is cute. You know, we got pictures. It was a mess. He didn't care. He was happy, man. He had chocolate up his nose and his eye. He had chocolate in his ears. He had chocolate everywhere. The whole place was a mess. Could care less. Babies demand a great deal of care. Someone had to clean them up. Well, see, what Paul is saying here is, you know what, brothers? You're not a baby. You should no longer be babies. You need to grow up. But Paul, Paul could only address them as babies. He had to take time. And see, what he's saying here in verse 2, he's not talking down to them at this point in verse 2. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food. What's he saying? He's referring back to when they came to Christ. I mean, he was there a year and a half with them as their pastor. I mean, can you imagine being under the teaching of the Apostle Paul for a year and a half? And have him sit there and say, you know what? I still have to call you a baby. I can't refer to you as a, as a spiritual person, as a Christian, because you're, you're still entertaining these basic, most basic things. 
And so he says, hey, when you were a baby, I fed you milk. I didn't throw a steak in your crib and say, yeah, no, on that, kid. You know, he, he gave him milk. He was careful. Gave him the, the basic food of the word. And that's what you would do with any believer. When someone comes to Christ, you know, the, the, the first Bible study you have with them is not probably on the, the subject of election. I mean, it's probably not where you're going to go for a while. Nothing wrong with that. We believe that. But, but at the same time, it's probably not, you know, you want to cover the elementary things. Christianity 101, the basic tenets of the faith with them. Give them a foundation upon which to believe. And that's what Paul did. He says, hey, I fed you milk. I just didn't throw food at you. He says, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it in your young age as a Christian. But then he says this, and even now you're still not ready. For you are still of the flesh. You're still acting like a baby. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? He's referring to them as uninformed. He's speaking of of the babies we see over in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. I don't know who wrote Hebrews, but whoever wrote it got it right here. Hebrews chapter um, chapter five, yeah, verse thirteen. Um, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not. Solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is called a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who, and he describes who the mature is, it's not a different class of Christian. He says, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. See, there's a real danger when you become like the Corinthians, and you begin to embrace all these worldly beliefs, you really become what James calls, in in James chapter 1, verse 25, he calls them forgetful hearers. Forgetful hearers. You've forgotten what you've been taught. You've forgotten the very elementary, basic things of your faith. See, this wasn't a mental ascent. He, he wasn't addressing them and saying, well, you know, your, your, your mind is lacking so you can't learn. He's not saying that at all. He's saying you have a mind like everybody else. You're just unwilling to. You're being influenced by all this other stuff. The problem was not a problem of low IQ, nor was it the problem of lack of teaching. I mean, this was the Apostle Paul teaching them. It wasn't because... They were ill-informed or ignorant. It was because they were fleshly, because they were giving an open door to the worldly wisdom and the beliefs of the world and their own flesh. In 2 Peter chapter 1, and we'll wrap this up here quickly, 2 Peter chapter 1, 
Peter writes this in verse 12 to 13. He's talking here to believers, and he says in verse 12, Therefore I intend always to remind you of these qualities. If you want to know what the qualities are, just look up at at the previous verses. Though you know them and are established in the truth that you have, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. See, that's what we're called to do as teachers. We're not supposed to come up with some newfound thought, some newfound truth. I mean, what if I came in, hey, I got something none of you have ever seen before in the Bible. It's a new truth. God revealed it to me last night. Here, turn. That would be a little crazy. You know, God does not, he, we have his complete word right here, and we all have access to it, and we all have the same spirit, so he can lead and guide us into his truth as he sees fit. But there's nothing that, that causes us to ignore God's truth more than not living it, and that's what he's saying here in First or Second Peter. A sinning Christian is uncomfortable in light of God's truth. Either he turns from his fleshly behavior and he be, or he begins to block out the light that God has shut upon his life. 1 Peter chapter 2 describes what we should do. We should long for the pure milk of the world, that we should grow in respect to it. So we have the flesh, we have the worldliness, all this stuff happening to us. But as I said, he's saying, as. Spiritual sometimes means practical, sometimes it means positional. You have to look at the context and figure out what he's saying. So it's not a new new baby Christian. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people that have been Christians probably several years. That's why we don't say, well, how long have you been a Christian? 20 years. Wow. Who cares how long you've been a Christian? It's irrelevant. I've talked to people who've been Christians 40, 50 years. And you know what? You've got to spoon feed them. The basic little doctrinal things because they've never been exposed to anything. They're still eating baby food. They're coming to church because of the lights and the, the experience or the music or whatever. They're not coming to be taught. Do you know that in Scripture you can't find anywhere where this word baby Christian refers to a new Christian. That's not what it refers to. It refers to spiritual ignorance. You could be a Christian 50 years and be classified as a baby Christian. So what do we do with this? What does this mean? It basically means that, you know what, if you walk in the flesh long enough, if you're exposed to the wisdom of this world long enough, like the Corinthians were, what happens is, John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, your spiritual gears get shifted into reverse. And you will become what James 125 calls a forgetful hearer. You will literally lose the ability to function on the things you once knew to be true. You will go in reverse spiritually. They forget the things 
They should have known. This is what happens here in Corinth. Their carnality has, their fleshliness has stunted their growth. Paul was giving them the word of God. Apollos was giving them the word of God. But you know what? Because of their own fleshliness, because their heart was set upon the things of the world, they couldn't receive it. Sometimes people who are in counseling will be faced with a principle. As biblical counselors, we believe that, you know what, when you have an issue in your Christian life, it's for Christians, hence the biblical counseling. But when you have a, a believer who is dealing with an issue, what do we do? We come to the Word of God, we open the book, and we say, okay, what's the issue? Well, let's see what God's Word has to say about it. And you draw out a principle from the Word of God. And you present it to that person. And you know what I hear more times than not? Oh, I know that. I know that. Well, okay. (laughs) You may know it, but you're not applying it. So you may know that to be true positionally, but practically you're you're not living by that principle. And so it's very, very important as believers that just because we come and sit in church every week, that does not make us, in the spiritual sense, mature. That doesn't make us wise. That just makes us people who come and warm a pew. And probably, most more times than not, for all the wrong reasons. Well, somebody would probably call me if I'm not there, so I better go to church. It's more introspective than it is, well, maybe, maybe God's grieved when I'm not there. And so we need to become, I believe as a church, transparent in our living, transparent in our dialogue, in our thinking, so that you know what? We can grow together as the body of Christ. Because if we're all hiding behind our little pasted-on smiles every Sunday morning and we're not revealing really what's going on in our lives, how are we going to get to know each other and grow together in this spiritual journey that we're on. Because this is all we got. When you leave this, these four walls, I mean, the world is against you. The flesh is against you. We got each other. And that's why it's such a blessing to raise a need, you know, uh, of our brother who needs, needs a place to crash for a couple weeks. I mean, what a glorious thing to come to the church and say, hey, anybody can help out, we'd appreciate it. See, that, that's what the church is about. That's why we're called the church. Um, So I I pray that as we continue in our journey that we'll continue to see how Paul reinforces this aspect. But I I pray that as you leave here today, you have a better understanding of what it means to be spiritual and what it means to be, for those of you outside of Christ, natural. And um, let's, let's close on that note. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Paul. We thank you for his heart. Thank you that he's willing to teach your word with authority. Um, And Lord, I I know that this church that he was addressing here was filled with fleshly things. Whether it's philosophy or sinfulness, over and over again, he had to address them as such. And Lord, I just pray that as a church that we would be willing to stand upon your word and your word alone. And Lord, really... um, pray that our influence in this community and even in the communities around the world through the missionaries that we support 
would have a lasting eternal effect, that people would be drawn to the kingdom as a result of how we live and what we say, uh, that we wouldn't just be here for entertainment's sake. Father, we thank you for your truth. We pray for anyone who may have yet to put their faith or trust in Christ. Lord, this is something that comes from your hand. Lord, that you, you give us salvation. You grant us repentance, the word says, repentance. And so, Lord, we pray this morning, if there's any here who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that you would give them a proper understanding of their, their own sinfulness before a holy God, that they're outside of Christ, that there's no hope for them eternally. Um, and, Lord, I pray that you would um, convict them of their sin, that you would draw them to the Savior, and they'd be willing to turn from their sin to the Savior, embrace you, and that you would grant them new life in Christ. Transform them. Make them a new person. Father, we thank you and we praise you. Pray, bless our fellowship time across the way afterwards as well. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.